The scripture reading today is John 6, verses 60 through 65. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Let's pray that God would help us. Our Father, this is a glorious text, and in some ways it's a difficult text, and I pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear what you have to say to us today. Lord, it's possible that there are people in our very midst today, or someone who might hear this message online that fits into the category of the kind of disciples we're going to look at today. And there are others of us today who struggle with the idea that you are sovereign over the salvation of human souls, and I pray that you would help them, Father, as they hear what your word clearly has to say. There are others of us who have embraced that doctrine but don't see how it's beautiful, and I pray that today that you would help us to see how it's beautiful, and there are still others of us today who both embrace this doctrine and see its beauty. And I I pray that today we would rejoice in all the more in the things that you have to say and in the things that you have to teach us. I pray that you would open our eyes to who you are and to how you act in the world and to why that is a good thing for us and for everyone and for your glory mainly. So please help us now, Father. Please come and speak to us. Please, Holy Spirit, give life to us as we submit ourselves to your word. And by faith, Father, we give you our thanks for what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. Having fed some 20,000 people with nothing more than the provisions of the poor, namely five barley loaves and two pickled fish, Jesus and his disciples crossed the northern side of the Sea of Galilee and went from where they were to the city of Capernaum and there they entered into the synagogue that was there in that town. The crowd that had received this blessing from Jesus knew that he was a prophet of God. I don't think they really understood who he was but whatever that meant to them, they concluded that he was a prophet of God and so when they saw that he had departed from that place, they actually pursued him across the northern side of the sea and they found him in the synagogue of Capernaum and there they struck up a conversation with him. There were others from the city there. There were the religious leaders of the synagogue there who themselves joined in as the conversation progressed. As they went back and forth, Jesus taught them that he is the true bread of life, that he is from heaven as the fulfillment of the sign of manna that God had given in ancient days. He taught them that he is not only equal to Moses, but that he is much greater than Moses for those who ate the manna in that day died. But Jesus said, whoever comes to him will never hunger, will never thirst, and will never again die. He taught them that the bread he gives in behalf of the world is his very flesh and blood. And he said that whoever would come to him must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood or else they will not live. And while the people hearing him understood that he was not promoting cannibalism, I'm sure that they were clear about that. They did not understand what he was saying and so they took offense at what he was saying. Finally, in ways that seem subtle to us but that would have been very clear to Jews, Jesus claimed to have a a kind of intimacy with God that clearly meant that he is equal with God. He said that even as the Father lives, so I live. So again, to us that's a very subtle thing, but to a Jewish ear it was very clear. He was saying that I am on par with the Father. So beloved, the point I'm trying to make here is that in the middle of chapter six, Jesus made extraordinary claims to Jewish people in the context of a synagogue. Because of these things, Many in the crowd that day took offense at Jesus, but for whatever reason, the conversation either ceased there or John just stopped recording what happened at this point. But no sooner had this conversation came to an end than another conversation struck up among his disciples, probably not at the synagogue, but probably as they were walking away 
from the synagogue. And in my view, this discussion took place out of the immediate presence of Jesus and out of the hearing of Jesus, and I'll explain to you in a minute why I think that is true. The word disciples here, uh, it can refer to various things. Sometimes in the Gospel of John, the disciples means only the 12, but here there's a broader group of people in mind. The word disciples here means people who had heard Jesus speak, who had seen Jesus act, who had believed in Jesus, whatever that meant to them at the time, and who had actually left their lives behind in order to follow Jesus. So understand that we're talking about people who made a serious commitment to Jesus. They did not just admire him as they passed, as he passed through their town. Rather, they left everything they knew behind to follow this man. They were his disciples. And having heard what he said, they struggled with what he said, just as Jesus' opponents struggled with what he said. In fact, as they probably walked along the road, they were saying to one another, you can see this in verse 60, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And by this, they did not mean that his saying was hard to understand. What they were saying is that his saying was offensive. If I could rephrase their question, they were saying, this is an offensive teaching, who can accept this? Who can receive this? Who can believe the claims of a man who to us just appears to be a man, but is clearly claiming to be one with God? Who can accept this offensive teaching? Now the reason I say that this was happening outside of Jesus' immediate presence and outside of his hearing is because John tells us at this time that Jesus knew inside of his spirit that they were grumbling about him in this way. It's not that Jesus heard them speaking or that he even overheard them speaking. Rather, in my mind's eye, as they were walking away from Capernaum and Jesus was prayerfully processing what had happened in that city, he developed an instinct that his own disciples were also offended by the things that he had said. Therefore, when the time was right, Jesus asked a direct and revealing question. I'm telling you, the Lord knows how to ask questions that absolutely lay bare our hearts And he said this in verse 61, do you take offense at this? The word here for offense literally means to put a stumbling block in someone's way. And so what he's really saying is, did my teaching cause you to stumble? In our way of speaking, we might say, did my teaching trip you up? Did it keep you from progressing? Does this make you question whether you should have believed in me? Does this make you question whether you should have given your life to me? Does this make you question whether I am the one that you thought I was? Does this make you question whether you should ever have followed me? And having so masterfully exposed the private murmurings and unbelief of his disciples, Jesus chose not to comfort them by explaining explaining himself. Jesus chose not to back off of what he was saying or to adjust his language or to explain his teaching so as to preserve his following. Jesus was not interested in simply preserving a crowd of people. Rather, Jesus chose to confront their unbelief by pressing his claim even farther. He said in verse 62, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He was saying, beloved, what if you were to see me return to the right hand of God where I dwelt with God the Father from before the foundation of the world? He was saying, what if you were to see the fulfillment of my claims rather than just hearing my claims spoken? If you are offended by my words, won't you be even more offended when you see the fulfillment of my words, will this not really cause you to stumble? This conversation, beloved, is very sad because Jesus is talking to his disciples. Jesus is talking to people who had heard him teach, who had seen him act, who had believed in him, who had forsaken their lives to follow him. And even as they followed him, Jesus was gracious to them. He was faithful to them. He led them well. He provided for them Every day, he taught them well. He revealed his glory to them on a regular basis and in a variety of ways. And yet they, feel, they failed to understand the meaning of the simple but profound teaching that Jesus gave in chapter 6, verse 29, when he said that this is the work of God. This is the singular work of God for all humanity, that you believe in him whom he has sent the heart of being a disciple of Jesus 
is believing in Jesus by understanding, embracing, and applying his words. Do you see that connection? To believe in Christ is to embrace and apply the words of Christ. But this is exactly the point at which these disciples stumbled. Jesus spoke words, and it was his words that were offending him, and it was his words that frankly were exposing them, and this was a sad fact. Because of all people, they should have believed in him, even if they didn't understand him. Listen, there are plenty of times, even after walking with Jesus for over 30 years now, there are times when I read the Bible and I'm confused by what he's saying. I'm confused by what he's up to. I'm confused by what he's trying to do. But the confusion of a devoted disciple is not the same as the rejection of an unbelieving so-called disciple. You see? Sometimes when we're walking with God, God is very great. He's a little bit hard to understand, isn't he? It's hard to get infinite glory and wisdom into this little pea brain of mine. But confusion and the need to grow is different than stubborn unbelief. What was happening in these disciples was unbelief, beloved. The unbelief of Jesus' own disciples was sad indeed. However, I want us to see that Jesus did not despair. There was a kind of grief, but there was not despair. Look at verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So in response to their unbelief, what did Jesus teach his disciples? If you were to find out that a third of the people at this church actually didn't believe in Jesus, what would you say to them? How would you respond? In response to the unbelief of his own disciples, Jesus taught them that true faith only comes about through the life-giving activity of the Holy Spirit. He taught them that the ability to believe does not ultimately derive from the human heart, but it derives from the very Spirit of God that hovered over the face of the earth in the beginning. Because this is true, and please hear this, a lack of faith exposes a lack of the Holy Spirit in one's life. You see that? For those who truly believe and yet struggle, we're still in a process of growing, sometimes a lack of faith all, what it's exposing is a lack of present fellowship and surrender to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't always mean that we're not actually in Christ, but generally speaking, where there is a lack of faith, there is some lack of the Holy Spirit, whatever the particulars of that lack are. The Spirit gives life because the Spirit enlivens our faith. The unbelief of his disciples, beloved, was very sad, but Jesus was saying that it's because the Spirit at this point was not vibrantly at work in their lives, stirring up faith in Christ. With regard to the things of God, Jesus said, the flesh is of no benefit at all. The, fe- the flesh profits us nothing at all because the words of Jesus are spirit and they are life, and the words of Jesus therefore have to be spiritually discerned. Please hear me, human logic will get us nowhere with regard to the words of Jesus. Nowhere. I have read incredibly educated, intelligent people who don't even believe in Jesus, but for some reason have made a life of commenting on the Bible. They make a life of writing theological books and commentaries on the things of God. Why they're even interested in doing this, I have no idea. But there are plenty of actually admittedly secular people writing about the things of God. And what I want to say to you is that even though I do benefit from some things that they write, on the whole, their writings are worthless because the flesh is of no benefit, even if that flesh is highly trained and highly intelligent. The flesh is of no benefit because spiritual things must be discerned spiritually. Is this bringing any text to your mind at all? If you think of the New Testament as anything sort of ringing in the back of your mind, I just want to remind you of 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. Paul wrote, the natural person, the fleshly person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly, they are foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And beloved, here's the point. We gain the mind of Christ and the ability to discern spiritual things as the Holy Spirit enlivens the word of Christ within us. If you have any true insight into the words of God, it's because the Holy Spirit is at work in you. It is Him working in you, not you working for Him. The Spirit of God is the one who enlivens God's Word inside of us, and if He does not do that, then we do not have life. If He does not do that, then we cannot believe, and I mean we cannot believe. We are unable to believe. So to this point in the message, we can say that the Spirit gives life through the words of Christ as they are understood, embraced, and applied. Failing to respond to the words of Christ in this way unveils the reality that we are fleshly people who are living in unbelief. This is why Jesus said in verse 64, he said, this is, he said that some of you still do not believe. He was simply drawing a logical conclusion. He did not need to ask the people about their experience with the Holy Spirit. He did not need to draw away and say, Holy Spirit, whose life have you been working in and whose life have you not been working in? You know why? Because you will know a tree by its fruit. And here's the fruit that Jesus saw. Life-giving words were issued and they rejected those words. They were not interested in those words. There is a difference between struggling to understand and actually rejecting words. What Jesus saw was rejection. What he saw was hardness. What he saw was unbelief. So he drew a logical conclusion. The Spirit is not at work in you. Some of you do not believe. Period and end of story. As sad as this was, I want to reiterate to you again that this was neither surprising nor was it deflating to Jesus. It might have grieved his heart, but it did not deflate his spirit. His eyes were fixed on his father. His soul was satisfied in that peace in his father. His will was perfectly submitted to his father. And because he prayed without ceasing, because he talked to God at all times and about all things, he had actually known from the beginning of his ministry who believed and who did not believe. There have been times in the life of this church where the Lord has clearly shown me that some people were gonna take certain actions in certain ways, weeks and sometimes months before it happened because as I just sought the Father, the Father revealed certain things to me because I needed to pastorally be prepared to handle them. I think that as a man, Jesus Christ was fully submitted to his Father and always seeking his Father and since he was totally without sin, the Father gave him eyes to see belief and eyes to see unbelief. He was not surprised when these people's unbelief was finally unveiled and exposed to the public, all right? Maybe the public was surprised. Maybe his other disciples were surprised. But Jesus was not surprised. He was content in his Father. He was seeking his Father. He was not unaware of the reality of his own disciples' hearts, and he was not deflated by the truth that not all of them believed. So this is why he repeated himself in verse 65. Please look at that verse. Very important verse. This is why I told you your unbelief, everything that's happened, all the dynamics that are here. This is why I said to you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father, period, and end of story. Beloved, as difficult as it is to understand, as offensive as it is to the human soul, as challenging as it is to embrace at times, the truth of the matter is that God the Father is ultimately responsible for who has eternal life and for who does not have eternal life. It is the Father alone who gives Jesus words to speak, which he faithfully and consistently proclaims to the world. It is the Father who gives Jesus commands to obey, which he gladly and perfectly obeys. It is the Father who causes people to come near and hear the words of Jesus and see the works of Jesus and to be confronted by the reality of the glory of Jesus. It is the Father who grants faith to believe in Jesus or who withholds that faith according to his own infinite wisdom. And on the basis of the Father's wisdom and will, it is the Spirit who brings people to life. 
So if I can put all these things together, I would sum up the whole message today in this one sentence right here. The Spirit gives life by the words of Christ according to the Father's will. That's how people are saved. The Holy Spirit gives life through the words of Jesus Christ according to the Father's will. That's how people are saved and not in any other way. From what I can see in all of Scripture, not just this text, but all of Scripture, there's simply no escaping the truth that God the Father exercises total sovereign control over the process and the outcome of salvation so that he ultimately determines who is saved and who is not saved, who gets eternal life and who does not get eternal life. Every human being has legitimately and repeatedly rejected God and come, therefore, underneath the wrath of God. We have done this in a number of ways and over a long period of time. And God would not violate his character or his wisdom if he pronounced judgment on all of us and sent all of us to an eternity of punishment for our sins. If I could put that another way, God is under no obligation to forgive anybody. Do you understand that? He has been rightly and repeatedly offended and nothing in his character demands him, nothing in his justice or wisdom demands him to forgive. He is the offended party, we are the offending party. He is the one that has in power, we are the ones who are in absolute weakness. God has no obligation to forgive anyone whatsoever. But alas, he has revealed himself to be the Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And because that is true, in order to display his infinite mercy in Christ, God chose to save some people from every tribe, tongue, and nation from the eternal consequences of their sins. Now, when it comes to exactly who those people are, that is God's business and that is God's decision alone. We do not know how he thinks of these things. We do not know how he chooses. But what we do know from Scripture is that he chose those he chose from before the foundation of the world. So what that means is that God chose who he would save on the basis of his own wisdom and not on the basis of anything that is commendable in us. I today or forever, I cannot boast in my salvation because I cannot say that I was just a little bit better than the next guy or the next girl I cannot say that I was just a little bit more commendable, I was just a little bit more passionate, I was just a little bit more humble. None of that is true. God chose me because he chose me. I don't know why he chose me. And to be honest with you, sometimes I have a kind of survivor's guilt. Like, why did you choose me and not my brother Ralph, who died in his sins and surely will be separated from you forever and ever? I don't know why God chose the way he chose. What I do know is that he chose. I cannot escape this teaching in the scripture, beloved. It is everywhere. And I think if you take John 6 seriously, you will not be able to escape it either. It is uncomfortable, it is difficult, it is offensive to the flesh in ways. But I think it is also true. There is no way to escape the truth that God is totally sovereign over the process and outcome of salvation. That is if we wanna take the Bible seriously and accept it on its own terms. And here again, we need to complicate, uh, contemplate the implications of the words of Jesus. So let me just read for you again verses 63 and 65. It is the Spirit who gives life, period, and end of story. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. While Jesus may have grieved at the unbelief of his own disciples, beloved, he was not surprised. Please understand that. And he was not ultimately deflated. He was not depressed by this. He did not lose his energy for the mission. He was perfectly submitted to his Father, and he was glad to walk in the will of his Father no matter what the cost or the consequences. Jesus Christ was glad to fulfill his destiny on earth whether everybody on earth believed in him or nobody on earth believed in him. Of course he knew that some would be saved. He said elsewhere that he came to seek and save the lost. John said of him, here's the Lamb of God, come to lay his life down for the sins of the world. Of course he knew that some would be saved. But beloved, the main thing he came to do is to submit to his Father. 
to surrender himself to the will of his Father. And the responses of people were not where Jesus put his hope, and the responses of the people were not where Jesus took his joy. The ebb and flow of the faith or lack of faith among his disciples did not profoundly affect Jesus. He was just steady, steady, steady. I met with a fellow pastor friend of mine this week. We talked for a couple of hours about a number of things and we meditated on this text together and oh, what a joy this text is to pastors like us. Because in America, in particular, we are obsessed with numbers. We love numbers. We're famous for this, by the way, in other parts of the world. They, they, they kind of shake their head at our obsession with numbers. And they know that when we come, if they can just produce numbers, we'll be impressed and we'll probably give them money. Jesus is not so obsessed and impressed with numbers, beloved. He is impressed and obsessed with doing the will of his Father. And then he's content. Does he want people to be saved? Of course, of course. I'm just saying that his anchor is in the Father. Our anchor, too, should be in the Father. We should not be so profoundly affected by the ebb and flow of the fruit of the preaching of the gospel in the world. Sometimes people will come to faith. Sometimes people will reject Jesus. After this brief conversation had taken place and because of the things Jesus had said, you'll see in verse 66 that many of his disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not superstitious about numbers, I could care less about the 13th floor and all these silly things. I'm not even superstitious about biblical numbers, but I am amazed that that's John 6, 66. The heart of evil is unbelief, beloved. At the heart of evil is unbelief. And because they did not believe, they walked away from Jesus, even though he had been graciously trying to help them come into the fold. He was confronting them, yes, but he was also inviting them, and yet they walked away. And this is very sad. Please hear the words of John Calvin. I was really moved by what he wrote as I did my study this week, so please hear what he had to say about this. He said, it is a dreadful and monstrous thing that so kind and gracious an invitation of Christ could have alienated the minds of many and especially of those who had formally professed to belong to him and were even his ordinary disciples, his regular disciples. But this example is held out to us for a mirror, as it were, in which we may perceive how great is the wickedness and ingratitude of men and women who turn a plain road into an occasion of stumbling to them that they may not come to Christ. Jesus Christ was not interested in numbers, beloved. He was interested in discipleship. Jesus was not interested in growing a massive movement for the sake of growing a massive movement. He was interested in obeying the will of his Father and speaking the words of his Father, period and end of story. And as it was on that day, I, I, I grieve to say that I think it would be on this day if we could gather every evangelical Christian from every church around this country into one place and take a couple of days and proclaim to them carefully and boldly and humbly the whole counsel of God, you know what I think would happen? I think a whole mess of so-called disciples would walk away. I think there are a lot of people in the United States today who claim to be Christians and who do not know Jesus. They live in unbelief because they do not really even hear the words of Christ in their churches. But even if they do, they do not embrace the words of Christ. To have faith in Jesus is to listen to and embrace and live by his words. That's what it means, beloved. And I fear that even in our day, this, the sad fact is true, that many who seem to believe do not believe. This is not a failure on the part of Jesus or even on the part of his church, although his church is weak. Rather, it is the sad reality of the human heart who would cling to someone like Jesus with our ulterior motives. There is in the church wheat, and there is in the church weeds. And from time to time, the Lord swings the sickle of his word and divides the two. He separates the wheat and the weeds. And in that final day, he will forever separate the wheat from the weeds. The wheat he will gather into his presence and there we will have joy with him forever. The weeds he will gather up, he will throw away and he will burn them with eternal fire. And again, this is not a failure on the part of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is not a failure on the part of the kingdom movement in the world. This is not even a failure on the part of the church even though the church is very weak and broken in the world. Beloved, this is the fulfillment of the Father's will and nobody can violate the Father's will, period. Not one person who belongs to Jesus will be lost, not one. 
And not one person who does not belong to Jesus will be found in his presence even if they claim to belong to Jesus. Many, he said, will hear him say in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we not do all these great things in your name? And he will simply say, I never knew you. Which doesn't mean he didn't know their name or their, where they lived and all that stuff. It means they never walked in fellowship. There was actually unbelief rather than belief there. The Father has no anxiety about the ebb and flow of the numbers of the church. And neither does the Son and neither does the Spirit because they are at perfect peace inside their Father's will and ways. So the, following, the falling away of unbelieving disciples was not a surprise to Jesus and it did not interrupt the flow of his passion for his mission in the world, but I will still say it was sad. It was very sad. Therefore, as Jesus and his closest disciples watched these other people walk away, just I don't know exactly how it looked. John didn't really picture the whole scene for us, but I imagine that the, the remaining disciples were standing there and they're just literally watching a crowd of people just walk away. And as they're watching that crowd walk away, Jesus turns to his disciples and asks this question in verse 67. He says, do you want to go away from me as well? Do you also want to harden your hearts? Do you also want to reject my teachings and therefore reject my Father's work and the Holy Spirit's work in your life? In Greek, Jesus asked this question in such a way as to expect an answer, no, like no, we're not gonna go away. There's a way uh, in Greek to, to phrase a question so that you expect a, a negative answer. And so when he said, do you want to walk away, he expected that they were gonna say, no, we don't wanna walk away. He expected them to be faithful to him. He knew that they would remain faithful to him, in fact. But I think Jesus asked this question because first of all, it's just hanging in the air. So many people just walked away and it's just sitting there hanging. It's the elephant in the room, right? So Jesus just says, to, are you gonna walk away too? But I also think this was a gift to his disciples because it allowed them a moment at least to search their hearts and to express their hearts to the Lord Jesus as far as what they really thought about him. Now in a moment of great crisis, if you just think about this from a fleshly way, it looks like the movement is falling apart. In fact, one of the commentators I read this week, I really appreciate this guy a lot, but in this thing, I think he got it wrong because he says that John 6 ends in ministry failure. This was not a ministry failure, but I think that it would have felt like a ministry failure to fleshly people. I think to Peter and the other disciples, it would have just felt like, wow, what's happening? The whole thing's falling apart. In the middle of a crisis, guess what? What's really inside of your heart comes out, and that's why I think Jesus asked this question. I think Jesus was giving them a chance to, to, to search their heart and to express what they really felt about Jesus. We should not be surprised, should we, that Peter's the one who stood up to speak. He was always eager to form an opinion and express his opinion. And while sometimes he was off in what he said, right here, he got it absolutely right. In fact, he was being led by the Spirit of God. I think he was speaking as the Spirit gave him words. You'll see what he had to say there. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Notice he didn't say, where else shall we go? He said, to whom else shall we go? He was focused on Jesus as the man of God. You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter's response was indeed a clear and emphatic expression of faith, but in light of what Jesus has just said, I hope we can see that it is more so a visible demonstration of the fact that the Father had granted him and the other disciples faith and that the Spirit had been stirring in them and given them life. You will know the tree by the fruits. And this open confession in a time of crisis shows that both the Father and the Spirit are at work in the lives of the disciples around Peter's words. This is why Jesus said to Peter in verse 70, he said, did I not choose you, the 12? In other words, he's saying to him and to all of them, he's saying, your confession is proof that you have been chosen. But you cannot take pride in this because it is the work of the Father and it is the work of the Holy Spirit. I chose you, you did not choose me. When I was little, my mom and I had this little game we would play with each other. We'd, I'd always say, Mommy, I chose you. And she'd say, oh no, Charlie, I chose you. Well, when this conversation happens between us and God, God wins that debate every time. He chose us period and end of story. So there's no cause for pride here. And then Jesus added, and yet one of you is a devil. Boy, that's some strong language, isn't it? One of you is a devil. He was, of course, speaking about Judas Iscariot, who was soon to betray him. 
But I think more importantly, beloved, he was continuing to reveal to his disciples the extent of his knowledge about their hearts. He was in total control. He was not surprised by what came because the Father was with him and the Father revealed all things to him. And so he was neither surprised nor was he deflated. In fact, his eyes were fixed on his Father still and his will was set like flint on the Father's will. That's all there is to it. Surely more than 12 people remained faithful to Jesus that day, but we don't know exactly how many. What we do know is that John 6 is ultimately about the sovereignty of God over salvation. And it teaches us that the Spirit gives life through the words of Christ according to the Father's will. That's how people are saved. I spoke a little bit last week and again this week about the difficulty of this doctrine. But with the time that we have left here, I wanna spend a little bit of time with you celebrating the beauty of this doctrine. I wanna give you 10 reasons why it's a beautiful thing that God is sovereign over salvation and that he ultimately determines who is saved and who is not saved. 10 things, first of all, the sovereignty of God over salvation gives us an opportunity to trust in the character of God. For many years, I must tell you, I really struggled with this doctrine and I did not for many years embrace this doctrine. The main struggle that I had with it was that I could not understand a God who would choose who is saved and who is not saved and still be good. I really struggled with that. I struggled with understanding who our Father is and what his character is like. But what happened to me is I kept reading my Bible faithfully, just reading my Bible, reading my Bible, reading my Bible, reading my Bible, taking the words as seriously as I could. And one day, I don't remember exactly which day, but I could look it up because I wrote it in one of my journals. I literally just wrote, that's it, I'm persuaded. I either must throw my Bible in the trash or I must embrace this doctrine, period. And I meant that. There was just too much evidence that God is in total control of salvation. And so I I was not in the mood to throw my Bible in the trash. So I embraced this doctrine. But I have to tell you, at that time, it was not beautiful to me. And I didn't feel particularly happy or even at peace about it. I just knew that I could no longer deny this doctrine. Then over time, God began to show me how beautiful this doctrine is. And in those early days, the most important lesson I learned is this. I learned that I can trust the heart of God when I cannot trace his hand. It's a saying that came from a mentor of mine. We can can trust the heart of God when we cannot trace his hand. So God is always and infinitely holy. He is always and infinitely wise. He is always and infinitely righteous. He is always and infinitely just in all of his judgments. And if I don't understand some of the judgments that he makes, I can still trust in his character. I can still trust that our Father did the right thing in the right way, even if I don't understand it. I can hold on until the day when he reveals all things to all of his people because I know that in that day I will see that he was perfectly righteous and he was perfectly right. We can trust the heart of God when we cannot trace his hand. This doctrine gives us an opportunity to trust in the Lord when we don't understand everything about who he is and and everything that he does. And beloved, even in hell, there will be a kind of worship of God Because in that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that God did the right thing with regard to all things. No one in hell will grumble against God. Not even Satan will grumble against God. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, but that weeping and gnashing has to do with regret over themselves with regard to God himself. They will confess that he is righteous and he is right about everything. And in heaven... There will be great and eternal rejoicing because the fullness of the character and the wisdom of God will be revealed, beloved. And when we see what God has done and the reasons for which he has done those things, we will rejoice forever. We will celebrate the truth that God is righteous and God is right. And for now, he's given us this incredible opportunity to grow a unique kind of faith. And that's the faith that trusts the heart of God when we cannot understand his hand, when we cannot understand his wisdom and his ways, we can yet trust in him. Second thing, the sovereignty of God over salvation kills pride 
and it breeds humility because we cannot boast in ourselves when we believe in Jesus Christ, amen? If God chose me, how can I turn around then and boast in myself and say, I was so amazing that God just had to save me? Actually, quite the opposite is true. Quite the opposite is true. And even as we grow, we cannot take credit for that either. As we progress in sanctification, you know what's actually happening? God granted us the initial measure of faith we needed to believe in Jesus Christ and gain eternal life. Every little bit that we grow from there, you know what we're doing? We're growing in faith. We're growing in belief. God is continuing to use the words of Christ and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of his heart, to enliven his life inside of us. And he causes us to progress. He causes us to grow. He causes us to be shaped into his image. And if my growth is God's work inside of me, I cannot boast about it. It is absolutely great news that God does everything in salvation for us because he removes the possibility of boasting. Don't you understand? Pride is the heart of all sin. Pride is the heart of all sin. By doing this for us, God removed even the possibility of sin in the next age. What an incredible grace that is. If you want to know more about that, by the way, just contemplate Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 carefully, and you'll see what I'm saying. Third, The sovereignty of God over salvation kills pride and breeds humility when we're fruitful in ministry because it leaves no place for us to boast in our skills or in our achievements. I have known very gifted evangelists who it seems like when they walk into a coffee shop, they come out and 10 people have come to Christ. It just seems like every time they say the name Jesus, people get saved. There are people who have very fruitful ministries. I'm thinking of people like Greg Laurie right now or in another generation, Billy Graham, just like when they preach, people get saved. There are some people when they plant churches, the churches grow far hard and fast and not because of the flesh but because the Spirit of God is actually doing something in that place. That is a grace of God and that's just the point that I'm making. None of these people can boast in themselves because it's not their charisma It's not their techniques, it's not the fancy name on their church, it's not any of that stuff that saves people. I heard John MacArthur say once, we're not in the business of overcoming consumer resistance, we're trying to raise the dead. And guess what, only God can do that. So if only God is responsible for salvation, then only God gets the credit. Our pride dies and our humility grows. Number four, the sovereignty of God over salvation kills discouragement and it breeds contentment when we share the gospel at home or abroad and we don't see much visible fruit, or when we go as missionaries to another part of the world and we don't see people coming to Christ. There's some missionaries I've heard of who spent 10, 20 years or more on the field and never saw one person come to Christ. I know plenty of church planters whose hopes have been dashed about the speed and the type of growth that God gave to them, but beloved, why would we be discouraged if we're being obedient to our Father? There's no need for discouragement. There's only room for contentment when we just surrender to the Father and say, listen, here's what my life is about. I wanna do what my Father instructs me to do and I wanna say what my Father instructs me to say. The outcome is his business. The Lord said to Ezekiel, good news, I'm not gonna send you to a people that you don't know. Bad news, your own people are not gonna listen to a word you have to say. And then he said something that's so encouraging to me. He said, their heads are hard. Son of man, I'm gonna make your head harder. (laughs) I'm gonna make your head diamond hard because your satisfaction will be inside of me. You will not need their response to fill up your soul. And beloved, that's what I'm saying. The more we embrace this doctrine, the more we just learn to be content in whatever God gives us as far as fruitfulness in ministry goes. Of course, we're not Jesus, and we should always be seeking to grow in our skill of fishing for men and women. Of course we should. But at the end of the day, we just give all these things to God. Number five, the sovereignty of God over salvation kills the fear of man. I want to thank Jordan for pointing this out to me last week. It kills the fear of man. For what have we to fear, beloved? Why would we be be afraid of what others think, feel, and say about us when we share the gospel if God is the one who is in absolute control of all things? If God orchestrates our desire to share the gospel and someone else's readiness to hear the gospel, then what do we have to fear? And even if they reject us, even if they reject Jesus, why should that be of fear to us, of, of even concern to us? Their response to God is between them and God, and our 
obligation before God is simply to walk in obedience to him. And I would just suggest to you that whenever you walk in obedience to God, there is fruit born, whether you can see it or not. Can I get an amen about that? When you walk in obedience to God, you bear fruit, whether you can see it or not. And who knows, maybe you have shared the gospel with some people who got mad at you or rejected you or whatever. Later, they got to thinking about things and they came to Christ. I can't wait to get to heaven. There's one guy, I have no idea what his name was, but God knows what his name is. He was the most obnoxious witnesser ever in my life before I came to Christ. This guy was a pain in the neck. And even to this day, I would tell him, brother, back it off a little bit, you know? Like, be a little bit more winsome. But I needed a guy like that. I was a stubborn donkey. I needed a guy like that. Finally, one day, I just said to him, would you just leave me alone? I'll come around someday. And then he said to me, someday might be too late. It's the last thing he ever said to me about the Lord. And that haunted me until about six months later when I came to Christ. But I never saw that guy again. I moved outside of that city. I never saw him. He doesn't know that he bore the fruit that's, that you're benefiting from right now because God did a work in him and through him. So don't be discouraged, beloved. When you share and people don't come, be content because you just never know. You never know what God is doing. There is no reason to be afraid when our eyes are fixed upon the sovereign God. Number six, the sovereignty of God over salvation kills insecurity and it breeds assurance because Jesus has taught us that when he brings someone into God's family, they will never be expelled from God's family. As he later said, of those whom you gave me, Father, I have not lost one. And since we are free in the arms of God, safe in the arms of God, we are free to lay down our lives for the glory of God and the good of other people. Our security comes from God, not from our results in ministry. Mike, what you said around the communion table today is so right. We don't need to come before God and say, Lord, because I had a good week, therefore I'm good with you. I'm commendable to you. No, our, uh, our security in God's family has to do with what Christ did for us. Because God made this choice for us, that choice is irreversible. Number seven, a related point. God's sovereignty over salvation kills insecurity and breeds assurance because we are eternally accepted by God and I don't need the approval of other people. I love all of you guys, but I have to be very honest with you, I don't need you to like me, I don't need your approval of my sermons, I don't need any of that because I am content in my Father. This is what he's teaching me. Look to me, son, take what you need from me, and then you'll be free to lay your life down for the good of others. And of course, hopefully, we'll remain humble before other people. Hopefully, we'll listen when other people have loving critique for us, but believe me, when your heart is settled in God, when you know that he chose you and he accepts you absolutely and fully, you will simply not need the approval of other people and you will be free. Number eight, the sovereignty of God over salvation frees us from having to learn a pitch and make a presentation and close a deal with a particular unbelieving soul. My first pastor used to tell us, when you evangelize, you have to close the deal. Well, I just don't agree with that. And by the way, he's changed his point of view now. As children of God, we are free to share the glory of Jesus from our hearts. And of course, it's good for us to learn various ways of articulating the hope that lies within us. But please hear the words that Jesus spoke to his own disciples. He said, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Please hear this. True evangelism is prayerful preparation meeting God orchestrated opportunity. That's what true evangelism is about. True evangelism is not about us going into the world and doing a work for God. It's about surrendering ourselves to the work of salvation he is already doing in the world. True evangelism is prayerful preparation meeting God orchestrated opportunities. And maybe today God would give you one of those opportunities. Number nine. The sovereignty of God over salvation implies that we don't need exhaustive knowledge of the Bible or of theology to share other people with Jesus and see them come to Christ. In fact, some of the most effective and fruitful evangelists in the church are those who recently came to Jesus. I know I probably led more people to Christ in the first three or four years of my life with Christ than all the years since then. There's just a, a zeal and a fruitfulness there. And of course, we all ought to be wanting to grow in our knowledge of God, but what I wanna say to you is that you can get a number of things wrong 
and God could still work to make somebody right with him. It's not about us, it's about God. God can use our sincere fumblings and stumblings to lead other people to Christ, amen? I once heard a pastor who doesn't embrace this doctrine say that if we underperform, people go to hell. And I just wanna say, pardon the French, but to hell with that way of thinking, all right? I wanna be as prepared as I can. But even when I'm super prepared, there are times when I begin to share the gospel with someone and I can't get two words together right. You know what I mean? It just feels like nothing's coming out the right way. But guess what? It doesn't matter. What matters is that God set up this encounter and maybe through my weakness, God is demonstrating his strength to that person. When we believe in the sovereignty of God over salvation, beloved, we are free. We are free to be weak because God is strong. Number 10, the sovereignty of God over salvation means that our lives will be an eternal glory to God. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 7, that we were saved by grace through faith so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In that day, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will alone be worshiped, and they will be worshiped with a, a, a tremendous intensity for all eternity. Every believing soul on that day will be evidence that God is worthy to be worshiped. Our souls will be like trophies in the presence of God that say he is worthy of eternal worship. Beloved, the fact that God chose us makes us an eternal object of praise for God, not for ourselves. And I'm telling you, this is the fulfillment of human life, to live for the glory of God. Because God chose us for himself, we have no chance but to hit that target. Eventually, we are gonna live always and only for the glory of God. Praise be to his name. The Spirit gives life by the words of Christ according to the Father's will. This is how people are saved. And while this doctrine is difficult in some ways, it is also beautiful. And I pray that you would meditate with me on these things. I pray that in your own heart and in your own life, it would seem beautiful to you. And if it's already beautiful to you, I pray that it would be more beautiful to you. Let me pray now that God will help us with these things. Our Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for the things that you have done. The truth of the matter is, Father, that if you had not acted upon our hearts, we would never believe in you. Or even if for a moment we believe, we would not remain in belief. And so we thank you, Father, for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you, Father, for displaying your beauty before us. We thank you for uh, proclaiming the truth to us so clearly, and we thank you for helping us to see why it is good and life-giving to those who believe. So I pray, Father, that you would indeed help us believe. I pray that you would use the words of Christ and by the Spirit of Christ, cause us to become alive in the presence of Christ even today. And if we already believe in you, Father, I pray that you would cause us to come to life all the more. I pray that we would be constrained in the most positive sense of that word, by the love of Christ. I pray that we would com be compelled from deep within our hearts to know you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to serve you all the days of our life. So Father, please come now. Use your word by your Holy Spirit and do your work inside of your people, I pray. In Jesus' gracious and great name we pray, amen.